Hello and welcome to Dig Deep, the podcast about sport, faith, and life. I'm Brian Bolt, Dean of Education and Men's Golf Coach at Calvin University. And I'm Chad Carlson, Professor of Kinesiology and Director of General Education at Hope College. And we're coming to you from the audio studios of Our Daily Bread. Our Daily Bread Ministries helps millions of people connect with God each day. For more than 75 years, their purpose has remained the same, to reach people with a life-changing wisdom of the Bible. This is the official podcast of the Second Global Congress on Sport and Christianity, held October 23 to 27, 2019 in Grand Rapids, Michigan at Calvin University, where we'll be digging deep on issues related to sport, faith, and life. Today we have Professor Scott Kretschmar with us. He's one of the leading sports philosophers in the country. He's taught philosophy for over 25 years and key roles and uh, lots of uh, influence in the world of sport philosophy. I remember the first time I picked up something that uh, Scott wrote and uh, I couldn't quite believe it. I thought somebody's thought this much about sport. Uh, I was really impressed with that. I went to a conference once that included the word Christianity, and then Scott was there. And I I was really excited, actually, because I thought, this is the guy that I love reading. And it turns out he is a Christian and um, has been thinking very deeply about this connection between sport and faith. So before we get started, I just wanted to say welcome, Scott, and thank you so much for the influence you've had on me in my career. Well, thank you, Brian. Uh, that was a very nice introduction, and I hope I can live up to all the nice words you just said. So over to my left here is Chad Carlson, who you know really well because uh, he was a student at Penn State, and you were his advisor through all that time. But before I hand off to him, it's more important because I know what, what Chad's going to do. He's going to kind of poo-poo this question, but I, I was looking through some of your work, and I haven't read this one yet, but it says you have a... a paper called Golf as Meaningful Play, a Philosophical Guide. Now, we only have 30 to 40 minutes. We should probably spend it all on golf. Uh, (laughs) Scott, could you just give us a little idea of that, and then I'll maybe let uh, Chad talk. (laughs) Yeah, I I did a book review on on golf uh, as meaningful play, and so it wasn't uh, totally my uh, original idea. Uh, but I like the title, I like the book, and uh, I've always believed that um, sport was about meaning. Maybe that's a, a kind of a, an obvious statement or a dumb statement, but um, I think we're, we are story-telling uh, and story-living people, and I think games like golf are rich sources for furthering our stories. And uh, so I've always believed that sporting activities like golf kind of strike at the heart of us and who we are as, uh, as human beings. So uh, I love golf. I am going to play golf later this morning, even though it's going yeah. to rain. <laughs> and so uh, I am not just talking golf. I'm going to be doing it. <laughs> you know, uh, Scott, Brian's a golf coach. You're a golf guy. I, I guess... Um, from two people that I really respect and, and, and believe, think deeply and well about sport. What, it is, what is it about golf? I, I guess I don't get it. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I always had trouble with you, Chad, you know, trying to explain something. This explains a lot, doesn't it? 
<laughs> this is uh, expected. Yeah, with tongue-in-cheek, uh, I've ranked games, and at least it's partly tongue-in-cheek. Chad may remember in class sometimes I would tell the students with a, a very uh, serious look on my face that bowling was not a sport. Mm. And then the students would be uh, saying with their body language, why isn't bowling a sport? And I would say something like, uh, any sport that requires you to wear silk shirts with your name on the back can't be a sport. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I, I think s sports are very different, and they all have their charms. Um, they all have their liabilities. And um, I've written articles on, you know, the, the weaknesses of certain sports, the structural flaws they have, and the things that make them less than ideal games. And so it's it's really hard to put your finger on why a game like golf um, has captured the imagination of so many people uh, worldwide. I've always believed that sport speaks to our human nature, so there's something about the drama of 18 consecutive tests that we take. Um, there's something about the drama of having a new chance 18 times. You know, when you get a double bogey on a hole, you get to walk to the next tee, and in a sense, it's a new test. And I think that we like that forgiveness aspect of golf, even though you have to keep the two extra strokes you took on the previous hole. You can have that new test and birdie the next hole, and the world looks good again. Uh, I think the pastoral part of golf is very important. Um, we are um, people who were once hunter-gatherers, who lived in the outdoors, who survived in the outdoors, and uh, golf in some subtle way uh, puts us back in God's beautiful world and in nature, and I think anybody would be remiss uh, if they didn't mention that as uh, one of the charms. And I'd say the last one that was mentioned in the book that I reviewed was the very personal nature. Golf is a slow game. You walk together. Uh, you can talk with friends. Typically, golfers golf with their good friends. And so it's a very human sport. Um, baseball, you know, you're separated out on the field. You get to go to the dugout and chew with your friends for a while, but then you go back out onto the field. But golf, you're together for 18 holes, and um, I, I like the social aspect of the foursome. You know, for our listeners, that's a, that's not how most people answer that question, right? <laughs> most people are going to get very quickly to maybe the, the challenge of golf, the feeling of striking a five iron just right. Uh, potentially, they'll they'll talk a little bit more about kind of the 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 sense of accomplishment and the frustration and trying to sort of sort through that. So, uh, to take it one or two or three layers deeper is uh, I'm already starting to do that right now with with other sports. Can you can we back up a little bit and just tell us tell us a little bit about how you got became fascinated with this area of sport and how. Um, how, as a philosopher, you sort of uh, kept moving in this direction? Yeah, I went to a small school in Ohio, uh, Oberlin College, as an undergraduate. Uh, my dad was the baseball coach there uh, when uh, I grew up in that town. 
unfortunately, he died from cancer my senior year uh, in high school, and I was going to go to another school on the East Coast uh, and decided at the last minute to stay at Oberlin. So back then, uh, kids, students could play three sports. It's hard to do that now. So I played baseball, mm-hmm. which was my main sport, uh, basketball, and cross country. So I went year-round uh, with athletics. I majored in religion at Oberlin, and I even visited seminaries. I uh, was mm-hmm. planning to uh, become a preacher. And uh, then junior year, I went to South America with a Lutheran student group, and we built homes in the slums, the favelas of Brazil. And while I was in uh, Brazil, I tell people I had a reverse conversion experience. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't lose my faith, and we were with uh, pastors and with uh, other Lutheran students all summer. I think my faith was strengthened, but um, one thing I came to grips with was who I was and where I thought I could make the greatest contribution. And I realized I loved sport, and I wanted to figure out why it had such a grip on people. And I also wanted to figure out why people called us dumb jocks. Hmm. And uh, so (laughs) there were a number of things that kind of motivated me. So I went back to Oberlin as a second semester junior and uh, switched to a phys ed major. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I got out of Oberlin, I knew I wanted to get the tools of philosophy to help me answer these difficult questions. And uh, so I didn't want to take any shortcuts. I knew that it was going to be a a long road to learn how to think well, at least as well as I was able to think. So I went to graduate school and studied with two terrific um, sport philosophers uh, in the yesteryear, Eleanor Matheny, a very, very bright woman, and Howard Slusher, uh, who wrote Mm -hmm. Man's Sport and Existence. Mm So I had very good training in the philosophy department out there and very good training in the phys ed department out there. So that was sort of my journey, and I've never looked back. Uh, I've never run out of questions. <laughs> I've never run out of things to, uh, to look at and to study, which is a real blessing uh, because I think some people get into professions and they grow stale in them, and they, they wake up one morning and say, what am I doing here? But I've never had that experience. Scott, the more time I spend in the world of sport philosophy, the more I think that the following is true. You are, to the world of sport philosophy, what the Apostle Paul is to the New Testament. <laughs> let me explain. <laughs> wow, that's scary. Let, let me yeah. explain that. So if there's something that needs to be said, you write about it. I feel that way about yeah. Paul with yeah. the early church. Paul responded to the questions of the time. Absolutely. Yep, each church had their own question, and yep, absolutely. Just as you have in the world of sport philosophy, you've done so much work. I wonder if if, if you can sort of identify the things that you've written that you've felt have had the most impact, or you've felt the best about throughout the course of your career. Wow. Uh <laughs> That's really hard to answer. Um, we wanted you to squirm a little bit. We hope that... Yeah, I'm squirming, that's for sure. I'm sitting here in my chair swiveling trying to come up with something. <laughs> Ironically, one of the things that has been used most often in anthologies and gets um, cited by people is that old article on test and contest. And 
you know, when I started out, I was much more analytic than I am now, and I like to drive wedges between things and say, now you haven't noticed a really important distinction. And if you notice that distinction, it would make a big difference in how you think about sport and how you analyze it and so forth. And so I went on sabbatical. Well, it wasn't a sabbatical. I was invited to be a guest um, professor at University of Massachusetts for one semester. Uh, a fellow named Hal Vanderswag was there, and he's written a couple of books on sport philosophy. He went on sabbatical, and I took over his life, so to speak, for a semester. Mm-hmm. And during that whole semester, I worked on something, on t- the distinction between test and contest. And when I read articles today and when I think about sport today, I keep coming back to that distinction uh, as a distinction that helps us understand there are really two sources of magic in sport, the testing, the challenging part. And Brian knows with the golf, golf is a beautiful test. Mm. And while you can contest in golf, too, you can very easily go out on your own, you and the golf course, you and that ball that doesn't move and sits there on the ground and defies you. And uh, you can have a marvelous experience taking the test of golf or the test of bowling or the test of distance riding or marathoning. So uh, the other part is the contest. Of course, you can get another person and join hands and say, you know, I love this golf game. I think I'm better than you. Let's go to it and see uh, who can who can score better today. And that uh, offers a second drama. So if you move from metaphysics to ethics, I think we people like uncertainty. Human beings like drama and uncertainty. If If life were guaranteed it would be a dreadful bore and so test gives us one source of uncertainty what will i score today i have a number in my head when i go out in two hours <laughs> so mm-hmm. i hope i hit that number 70 yeah 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 it's, it doesn't start with that number oh, okay. but I, i'm checking. not going to bore okay. you with what number <laughs> it starts with and then the second source of uncertainty is the person i'm playing against and uh, am I going to beat them? Is it going to be close? Am I going to blow them out? Uh, you know, and those two dramas go hand in hand, and they make for a delightful experience. Um, eventually, we get resolution to both of those questions, both of those dramas. And there are very few places in life where you have a double drama going at the same time. Scott, there are so many uh, aspects of sport that um, we don't speak about with, in such glowing ways, right? There are so many uh, things that happen externally uh, with, uh, with our opponents, with our teammates, and truthfully in our own hearts that uh, don't seem nearly as admirable as you're kind of describing this wonderful experience. Yeah. And so for... For people that are um, responding to the call of Jesus Christ and trying to reform their their lives in in mm-hmm. lockstep with with obedience, right? Um, as you think about that, and you think about sort of the the evolution of sport in a person's life, uh, mm-hmm. does that can you can you describe how that might grow, or is or is it something that sport begins to fade? as a person grows in faith? Wow. Um, I think it should grow. It doesn't always grow. 
Uh, I'm a big fan of G.K. Chesterton. Uh, I think he's fun to read, and mm-hmm. he has a lot of insight. And he's big on dual obligations we have as Christians. Uh, one side of our obligation is to make God's kingdom better, that is, uh, to bring the kingdom to hand and to do things that make this world more loving, more accepting, uh, and so forth. And we would typically call that work. Uh, And so we Christians have a divine commission, so to speak, uh, to work hard and to work in special ways uh, to make uh, Eden come back, (laughs) to make it (laughs) more like it was and God intended it to be. But the second part is equally important. I think we have a moral obligation as Christians to dance, to celebrate, to enjoy, to say thank you. And that's where the sports side comes in uh, for most of us. We're not professional athletes, and it's uh, not part of our work-a-day world. But uh, it's part of the loveliness of God's creation. And so G.K. Chesterton says that we have uh, the world is two-sided that God created. It's a task garden where we have work to do, and it's a playground. So I think... Um, as Christians, we have a duty on both sides of things. Um, the task garden side with sport is to get rid of some of the things that make it um, less than beautiful, uh, like uh, winning at all costs and the kinds of nastiness you see in sport, uh, the kinds of retaliations you see in some sport, the kinds of risk people take with their life uh, just to win a, a silly game. Uh, there's a lot in sport that needs reformation. Uh, I was a faculty athletic rep for 10 years here at Penn State, so God knows that <laughs> mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of things that need reformation. Mm-hmm. So that's the task garden side. So I think we should work our butts off to make sport cleaner, better, more godly. And then we have an equal obligation to play our butts off uh, to exhaustion, uh, to say, Thank you, God. Uh, Golf is beautiful. It's wonderful. Uh, It's part of your creation, and uh, we're grateful for for having that. Scott, how have you um, been able to navigate throughout your career as a Christian working um, at at secular universities, working uh, among some believers, but also um, probably a fairly large number of those who, who don't believe and who, uh, in some ways, might be antithetical to the faith. So, as a kinesiology professor, you are in a, a, a science department with scientists, some of whom um, would be able to reason their way away from God, as well as as faculty athletic rep, working with uh, you know high stakes sport that oftentimes doesn't leave room for God. How do you how do you interact yeah. in, in some of those situations as a Christian? Well. <clears throat> I think we we people can't take our clothes off, so to speak, when we walk into a classroom. Hmm. I'm I'm me <laughs> when I walk in front of the students, and I happen to be a Christian me, and so it would be unfair to ask me to divest myself of all that uh, energizes me, all that inspires me, and and my worldview. So uh, I would guess that. 
Christians sitting in class might have the hunch that this guy's a little different. Uh, you know, he, 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 <laughs> I thought he, that as a student. <laughs> <laughs> he could be a Christian. Uh, I thought that of Dallas Willard. He was oh, one of yeah. my uh, heroes at USC. Uh, he was a, a very famous, brilliant philosopher in the philosophy department. And he was the kindest, most accepting, most gentle giant I've ever been with. And he didn't wear his Christianity on his sleeve. He never said at the start of a lecture, you have to believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, so he kept that off the table. But his behavior, he modeled Christ as a teacher. Um, and so I was very careful at a secular university not to overtly uh, preach the gospel. Uh, I couldn't do that ethically. Uh, because, as you mentioned, there are people in class from different faith groups. Uh, they believed in God, but not through the Christian uh, faith. And there were, uh, you know, secular people in class who didn't believe in God at all. And my duty as a teacher was to bring them all along, to love them all, to care for them all. And if I had overtly worn my Christianity on my sleeve and... <clears throat> and done things that I might have wanted to do if I knew they were all Christians, um, I just couldn't go there because it would alienate and it would break that bond between me as teacher and them as student. So <clears throat> I don't know if Chad remembers, but there are times when I would talk about the kind of authority we have as philosophers. How do we know that something's true? How do we sneak up on the truth? And I had a slide that included the Bible, and I said, some of you in class uh, find your authority from faith commitments. And then I said, some of you who do not make those faith commitments find your authority from logic and reason. Some of you find it from science. And so I would have to be diplomatic and truthful in that way to keep uh, the trust of the students uh, from their different perspectives. Now, when a student came into my office, that was a different matter. And I've had some very deep Christian conversations with an individual student who came to my office and asked, are you a religious person? And if they wanted to go there, then in my office, I was more than comfortable saying, yes, I am a Christian. I'm a religious person. And it makes a big difference in my life. But I would never do that in front of the class. Well, Scott, I think what you did in class uh, verbally uh, also comes through in your writing. Uh, there are little hints in there that, um, like I said, when I first picked up uh, some of your work, I don't know if it was practical philosophy and sport potentially, that, uh, that there, were, there were some signs there to me that I just wanted to keep reading. Um, and... Uh, I think that you've been able to pull in more people into this conversation because of that, that line that you've been walking. But at, uh, I've also heard that uh, in your uh, retirement now, you are spending some time uh, on the pulpit. Is that, <laughs> is that correct? That, that's true. Okay. Uh, I have a second career now, oh. and uh, it's was very easy for me to fall into the second career because I was a religion major and I've always read uh, 
Christian books. Uh, where my wife and I have been in a Bible study group with the same same individuals for 35 years. Wow, that's we, great. We've read about everything there is to read. <laughs> so uh, I'm up to date pretty much on Christian literature. And I was put on um, what's called the Committee on Ministry. It's uh, part of the Presbyterian Church. And um, on this Committee on Ministry, it sits over about 45 churches in a district in central Pennsylvania. And on that committee, I, my eyes were open to the incredible need for what you might call substitute pastors, hmm. because a lot of these churches are small. Uh, they can't afford a full-time minister. Uh, they want to keep the doors open. They have a number of faithful people who still belong to the church. And so I started looking into certification as a lay pastor. And so I've been working on that. I'm about halfway home. I'm certified to preach uh, and to lead services. I'm not certified to do um, weddings, uh, communion, or uh, funerals. But I will be uh, down mm. the road. Nice. So I go to Saturday workshops, and uh, I get trained. And uh, I'm very busy. I would say about uh, one out of two or one out of three Sundays I'm in a pulpit. Wow. So uh, I have some great sermons. You want to hear one? Yeah, why don't you just uh, take a couple <laughs> minutes and fire one off? Yeah, that'd be great. Well, my title, I'll tell you the title of my sermon last uh, Sunday. And uh, it, the title was, Did Jesus Ever Dance? Nice. Is that online the, anywhere? Because I want to listen to that. No, that no. isn't online, but uh, I, could, I could send it to you if you want to uh, bore yourself with that. But uh, <laughs> as you probably know, there is no place in the Scripture where it says Jesus danced. So That's I true. have to piece together things and then also answer the question in the sermon, why is it important to even answer that question as to whether Jesus danced at the wedding at Cana, for example? I'm guessing that congregation had not anticipated that question. No, they uh, they looked, and uh, I, you know, I, I look at their body language. I'm a teacher, of course. I, I know when people are bored and go to sleep and when they aren't. And this one lady in the front was just had a biggest smile on her face. <laughs> she That's was great. enjoying it tremendously because... Um, I was part of the message was that uh, Jesus enjoyed life. You know, he wasn't uh, yeah. a monk that uh, hated human existence and couldn't wait to get back to the Father. Uh, he enjoyed life. He did. So it and, sounds uh, like Scott that that the, um, you are you're taking your philosophy and and sort of bringing it to the pulpit. In some ways. how often are you are you preaching um, about things that you you researched or taught? Well, I would say more than occasionally. Um, I'm trying to stretch myself, you know, by <laughs> reading uh, parts of the Bible that I haven't really focused on before. Um, but, yeah, I can't help it. And, of course, people love sports so much, they love sports stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm talking about radical love or there's, you know, some theme in the Bible where I'm talking about the, the kind of love that we're supposed to uh, exhibit as Christians, um, I can use sports stories like the Lutz Long story and Jesse Owens sure. and uh, how, you know, that was just before the war and the Nazis and Americans and Hitler and so forth. And then this incredible love gesture of Lutz Long toward Jesse Owens, an African-American. 
And, you know, people are on the edge of their seats. They hadn't heard that story if they hadn't seen the movie. And, um, you know, there are times when I use sports stories, and uh, it works out beautifully because everybody can relate to sport. And we're back to St. Paul. Got it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Back to St. Paul. Run the good race. (laughs) Uh, Hey, Scott, this has been fascinating. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but we do have – uh, some other sort of uh, questions just to get to know you a little bit, um, sure. and then we'll sort of wrap up from there. Uh, so I've, I'd like to know, you've read so much, you've written so much. I'd like to know which maybe two or three or four books you go back and read a second or third or fourth time. Well, as Chad knows. Uh, the Grasshopper. I've been fixated on the grasshopper. Yes, yeah, Suits, yes. Suits book, and that's a classic. Uh, it's rich. Uh, I think he's wrong about some things, but it's taken me my whole life to figure out why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's uh, the nature of a classic is you. it invites you back. Uh, you find new things when you read it uh, again and again. Uh, boy, um Hoisingus Homo Ludens is another classic um, that I, I go back to uh, time and again. Um, in Christian literature, uh, I love Dallas Willard, my old teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know how much a Christian he was when he was teaching me phenomenology and we were reading Merleau-Ponty. Mm. But I learned afterwards that uh, he taught at a seminary uh, in his retirement, and wrote a number of books, and so one book that I would recommend is The Divine Conspiracy. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful book. Um, But, you know, there's so many books. You know, you pick up little tidbits uh, from different things, even some non-Christian writers. Uh, One of the early books I read was uh, I Thou by Martin Buber, which has a lot of Christian ideas in it, even though he wasn't a, a professing Christian. And so there, you pick up tidbits here and there. So I've never been afraid to pick up, uh, you know, books that uh, weren't written by Christians as well as those that were, uh, because uh, I find, you know, morsels of uh, things that I want to remember. But as I mentioned, G.K. Chesterton, <coughs> his book Orthodoxy is a hoot. Uh, mm-hmm. It's fun to read. Uh, I think he is, uh, he's funny, uh, like Suits is. He's got an incredible wit, uh, but uh, he writes beautifully. And as Chad knows, I was a stickler for writing and attempting to write clearly. And so <clears throat> I really respect people who don't try to pull the wool over your eyes with big words. I like small words. <laughs> <laughs> and Chesterton is just uh, brilliant. He's got a great vocabulary, and he communicates wonderfully. So uh, for those who haven't uh, found him yet, I would recommend that. Hmm. So you've done so much work in your career. You've published a lot. You're now preaching. So you've done all these intellectual pursuits, these high-minded, high-cultural things. Uh, and yet I can remember one time walking into your office and seeing you at your desk uh, as focused as I'd ever seen you. I asked what you were doing, and you said, I'm, I'm working on my fantasy baseball lineup. <laughs> so you've got time for these other hobbies. Share with us some of your hobbies related to sport. 
Well, fantasy baseball, before you guys called, I got here early enough so I could check the standings and oh. see where my team was. Oh. Uh, so, you know, priorities. Right. Uh, so, yes, I've been in a fantasy baseball league with the same guys for about 30 years. Uh, with email, we're back and forth with each other all the time, joking and ribbing and, you know, having fun with one another. Uh, we meet each year at a baseball venue. We've been to Field of Dreams, literally on the field playing baseball. Wow. Uh, we've been to Cooperstown. We've been to most of the major league venues. Uh, we've sat in the uh, president's box behind home plate at some games uh, because we are the oldest continuous fantasy league baseball league in the country. Wow. So, uh, Nobody recognizes that we've been trying to get. <laughs> well, now that this, you know, we have so many it. listeners, this will this will get it out there for sure. <laughs> well, there'll be somebody says no, uh, <laughs> somebody else. But yeah, I do baseball, uh, fantasy baseball, uh, golf. Uh, I'm a distance biker. Uh, my daughter and I have biked across some states before. Uh, so uh, yesterday, I went on a 31 mile ride. Um, I have a model train in my basement, a layout uh, that's very large, and it's, uh, it's, that's, you're, you're being humble. It's it's huge. It's massive. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, very large. And then Chad knows my last hobby, which I, unfortunately I can't pursue much anymore, is table tennis. And my dad taught me table tennis when I was a little kid. I got into a tournament in Cleveland, won the darn thing. And uh, I tell my students in class, I'm the only professor in the world that I know of that has taken a sabbatical to improve their national ranking in table tennis. <laughs> and that's true. I did get a sabbatical approved. It was half of a sabbatical, to be truthful, uh, to improve my national table tennis ranking by 100 points. And you have to enter tournaments and do certain things in tournaments to get a higher ranking. So I play table tennis. I still challenge my students uh, in class. Is there, are there any table tennis players in here? And last last year or two years, three years ago, when I taught this class the last time, this one fellow uh, uh, spoke up and he says, "I'll bet you a hundred dollars I can beat you, Dr. Kretschmar." Mm-hmm. And uh, he was on the national team in China. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> that's the first time I've had somebody in class <laughs> who was really uh, head and shoulders above me. But I still play table tennis. I've got, as Chad knows, a table in my basement. And uh, if I can get anybody over there to play me, uh, I'm happy to do it. I went to China this uh, summer and gave some talks over there. And um, I asked at my first lecture if there was anybody in the class who would be willing to take me to the table tennis venue and play with me. This one fellow is just marvelously uh, supportive. He took me over there. There were 40 tables in this gymnasium. And as far as the eye could see, there were table tennis tables. And we played for two hours. And he was much better than me, and he was very nice. And Afterwards, he gave me a left-handed compliment. He said, you're the best professor I've ever played with. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know how to take that exactly. (laughs) So I've got lots of hobbies, and um, 
again, getting back to God's playgrounds, uh, I've found a lot of things that are just incredibly enjoyable, and uh, I just don't have enough time to do them all. All right. Well, one of the things we want you to keep doing is keep thinking deeply about sport and keep writing that down and keep speaking. And so we do thank you in the fall, in October 23 through 27, you will be one of the keynote speakers at the Second Global Congress on Sport and Christianity held at uh, Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We are so much looking forward to that. That topic will be uh, some extension of the work you've done, but also you're going to to dig deeply into one of the, the things you referred to, which is your experience at Penn State, especially through the scandal that... uh, that people have all experienced and may have a memory of. And so if you want to hear more about what um, Dr. Kretschmar has to say on that and sport, uh, I think uh, that would be a, a fantastic opportunity for anyone to take take advantage of. You can find that at uh, Calvin's website, calvin.edu slash events slash 2GCSC. Dr. Kretschmar, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. This has been fascinating. I know we've just gotten started, uh, but I just wanted to thank you. I know that uh, much of of my career um, has been blessed by the work that you've done, and uh, it's even better now that I know you. uh. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me on your podcast, and I'm very much looking forward to coming up uh, to Grand Rapids, right? Grand Rapids. I, I have my plane ticket, and I'm working on my paper, and you put together a marvelous program. Uh, so I'm looking forward to listening to the others as well as presenting. So uh, thanks for inviting me. So Scott Kretschmar, a uh, sport philosopher, and a guy who's done um, really I would say, monumental work in the field. Everyone thinks about Scott um, when they think about, you know, okay, what do I want? If there's a big question to be answered, what does Scott say about it, right? Um, and yet he goes back to this whole idea, his ma- one of his major contributions being this idea of test and contest. Uh, I, thought, I found that pretty fascinating that we go back to, and... <laughs> I thought he would say everybody, um, you know, refers to this testing contest, but I've done this or this or this. But the truth is just being clear about what sport is has been his, um, his real gift. It has. And this, this particular article he's talking about it has, has such wide-ranging ethical implications too. I mean, I think the reason why it's had such legs, I think he wrote it early on in his career. I'm thinking mm-hmm. maybe the early 80s. Oh, yeah, I think. It's been I, around. I, maybe it has a 70s. It may, it may, it might. Yeah. yeah, it's been around a long time. But the idea is that we get so focused on uh, the contesting elements of sport, that is whether we beat our opponents or not. And that's only one drama is what he's saying. There's so much else that we can be thinking about and focusing on. And one of those things is um, our own ability to to take the test, right? Golf pr- provides us, he, as he mentioned, a very simple example. Golf, you know, simple sport, shallow sport, I suppose I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Deep sport. The idea is, you know, uh, it's, it's, much, it's much more difficult to see, for instance, in football or basketball, um, the test, how well did I test? Because we so, we're so focused on the final score, and that final score is comparative. 
to uh, to your opponent, did I win or did I lose, is oftentimes the question we want to have answered first. But, you know, how well did I take the test? So how well did I do certain things, take some of the pressure off, whether I won or lost in a particular game? And I think especially for youth sports, uh, you know, young young kids playing, this is an important concept. Well, and I think there's always... Uh, different kinds of motivation, right? So psychologists break this down into what's called task motivation. Sure. My ability to accomplish the task, to show mastery over a particular task. And then the other side, it's it's called it's called ego. And ego motivation essentially means, was I able to best my opponent? And the interesting thing about high-level performers in just about everything, and people that tend to stick with their task, is that they are they are really high in task motivation. Mm-hmm. So everyone thinks that it's the um, the competitiveness, the desire to beat the other person, that really drives the Michael Jordans of the world, that really drives the um, Tiger Woods of the world, right? But it is often the highest performers that have found a way to really focus in on the task and try to accomplish the task that's in front of them. Uh, now, uh, high-end performers also have a lot of ego mo- motivation, but what we find is that if you are motivated primarily by beating the other person, you're much more likely to fail. You're much more likely to give up because if you spend a, a lot of your energy on uh, or get only satisfaction through beating somebody else, you're bound to run up against people that will beat you over and over and over again which causes people to, to quit sports. So having that high focus on the task, on the test, um, tends to make higher-level performers. Yeah, and, and that test, there's more of a gradation of how well you did. You know, if you're focused on um, the outcome of the game, the contest, you know, you, you either succeed or you fail, right? It's like taking a class, pass-fail. Um, but if you're focused on the, the, the testing elements, um, it, there's a gradation, right? And so it's not necessarily did I did I fail or did I succeed. It's how well did I do, and that that leads to a bit of deeper thinking, I think, as well uh, related to sport. And the cool thing about you know the way in which Scott writes is that he's talking about all these things, and yet he's not using this jargon that's that's available, you know, only to to psychologists or or, or requires psychologists to to explain to the layperson. He, he's, he's talking to, to regular people, uh, to sports fans, and be, in some ways because that's what he is, and that came through very clearly, I think, in, in the interview, that he's a sports guy. And I thought the beauty of how he just sort of divided up the, the world, saying that, you know, God has given, and he kind of borrows this from Chesterton, but God has given us uh, a place to work, and he's given us a place to play, right? And w- what was interesting about what he said there was that we're required to do both which is rarely the message, right? It's sort of we work and then we kind of pull away from work so that we could play, but we feel sort of, you know, uh, maybe I should be spending my time on something more important. And he elevates the importance of play and just parallels it and says, you are called to this in the same way that you're called to work. And I think that that message gets lost a lot. Yeah, he's definitely an advocate for play and, and not feeling badly about that. But uh, so he talked about playing golf later today. You know, he, he will spend plenty of time, I'm sure, in his retirement playing each day. But I can also guarantee that he's spending just as much time, you know, working in the garden, mowing the lawn, uh, cooking dinner, all those things that writing need to sermons. be done as well. Yeah, writing sermons, right? Right. Um, and so there's this there's this mixture that I think he's got a really really cool understanding of. Well, we are really excited that he is now turning his attention to what I what really for him is a novel topic. Um, he is going to 
he is not just regurgitating a paper for us uh, for our second global congress. He is actually really uh, foc- focusing his energy on a pretty painful moment in his life. Uh, as a as a longtime professor at Penn State, he had relationships. He had a relationship with Joe Paterno mm-hmm. and a relationship with the president of the university at the mm-hmm. time. And because of those relationships, he walked through that scandal in a much uh, more personal way than, than any of us. And so for him to, to talk about that from the inside and to talk about how potentially sport played a role in, um, in some of those things happening, uh, I think it's going to be very uh, informative to the rest of us and a bit of a cautionary tale. And I think it's going to have uh, it's going to have it's going to have legs. It gets beyond Penn State. You know the the, the theories behind all of this. Why wh- how a Christian community can reflect on a major sports scandal. We've had some since Penn State now, and yeah. and likely will continue to have some. How do Christians deal with this uh, from his firsthand experience? So, yep, very excited about about this talk. Fantastic. And this has been Dig Deep, the podcast about sport, faith, and life. And we are out. Mm-hmm.